Feels to be free. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. <clears throat> I wonder if I'll ever know that. <clears throat> maybe not in this incarnation. Maybe I'll just have to get through this one, and maybe the next one will be better. I don't know. But I keep trying. I keep trying. Keep trying. What today is Good Friday, and not having been raised a Christian and being somewhat um, ignorant and uh, losing my memory, probably. This is the day that Christ was crucified. Right? And then Sunday is the day he rose from the dead, right? Okay, so I got that right. I got, got confirmation out there. Um, and what was Christ's message? Christ's message was love. Christ's message was love. Uh, whatever else he said, whatever else was said about him after all these centuries and these millennia, the message was love. And uh, what was his reward for that? <laughs> his reward was... Uh, at least on earth, uh, they crucified him. Uh, this is this this word love. Uh, I think it was in Oedipus at uh, Colonus, Oedipus at Colonus, um, uh, Sophocles uh, has a line in there that uh, that I think Oedipus delivers. And if I, had, I guess I'd have to paraphrase it, I didn't write it down when I was looking at it the other day. Um, oh, by the way, this is Mike Fader, and this is the turning point. Um, one word, I think this is what the quote is, one word relieves us of all the pain and suffering in this world, and that word is love. Would that it were that easy. Uh, look what Christ went through, and look what everybody goes through. Love, in my experience, maybe in some other people's experience, it's the hardest, for some reason, for many reasons, it's the hardest message to send, and it's maybe the hardest message to receive for so many people. Like God knows Christ's Father knows that uh, it always has been for me. <clears throat> the other day, actually, um, speaking of love and family, um, my sister uh, told me that my father would have been 100 years old this April 30th is his birthday. 
100 years old. He never would have made it anywhere near that. I mean, he, well, I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, he had, uh, the way he lived, <laughs> the way his, uh, his physical condition was, he never would have gone anywhere near there anyhow. But his life was cut short way before we would have found out anything about that. Anyhow, my father, <clears throat> 100 years old this April 30th, my father in my life, the always missing man. My father was always missing. He was the missing man, the always going away, can't ever get a hold of a man. And yearning, a kind of a desperate yearning. Uh, he always seemed to be headed out or away someplace. Could never get, all, never get my hands on him, emotionally, spiritually, even actually. <clears throat> but after all this time, it's been 40 years now since he died, I still miss him terribly. I really do miss him terribly. It's, and I mean, everybody, yeah, everybody whose uh, parents die, uh, whether you hated them or whether you didn't speak to them or whether, uh, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I would say almost everybody. Uh, and if you loved them and if they loved you and you had a good family or even whatever, you miss them, of course. You miss them terribly. There's an awful ache when it comes time for holidays or, and they're not there or a birthday, or your birthday, or some big event in your life that they're not there for if they're not. Um, and you miss them. And, uh, they're a special, and maybe there are different ways. For every person who misses their parents if they, if they lost them, if they died, um, there's a different kind of missing, a different kind of ache. With my father, um, it's a special ache. But it's not because of the way he lived, the way he lived. Um, it's not just the way he lived, but also the way he died. The way he lived was he was rarely ever home. When I was uh, four years old, um, he left. He left the family, and that was it. And he was always away someplace, always away, uh, traveling either in this country or, or all over the world, always gone someplace or always going to go someplace. He just was never there. Most For most of my childhood, he was never there. He uh, came back and... <clears throat> got remarried when I was about 10 years old and lived out on Long Island, not too far from me. But still, he was always traveling or and he was in other cities or other, God knows where he was. You, you know, he was in swamps, he was in deserts, mountains, and he would still travel overseas. So I would see him, he would drop in when he was available and had nothing to do with what I might want. But he he would drop in, you know, he'd come around for weekend visits or he'd drop in on a Sunday for a couple of hours. And then... Bye-bye. He was gone for weeks or even months, and then maybe he would show up again for a day or several hours at the most. But uh, it's not just the way he lived that made me, that puts me in a state of almost like terrible missing him and, and yearning to have him stay in one place. It's the way he died, too, the way he died. He died suddenly and violently uh, in a faraway place, faraway place, uh, I think 12,000 miles from where we lived in, uh, in out in Queens, he died. <clears throat> he was working in Istanbul, and um, this was um, in 1970. And he um, 75 actually. My memory's all no, no. 70 is when he was uh, when he went to Turkey for the first time. In 75 uh, is when he died, and um, it was in January of 75. His plane, he had been flying to Germany to do something with the company he ran. He ran this, uh, a branch of a huge international construction and chemical engineering company. 
uh, he ran it in Istanbul. And he was uh, flying back from Germany, and his jet plane, a small jet with about 50 passengers, um, <clears throat> crashed into the Black Sea right outside of Istanbul. Uh, what happened was that um, the Turks, um, still getting used to the modern world, uh, had... Um, had uh, taken, uh, they didn't have as much electricity as they needed for the city. They were still building more generators or whatever. And occasionally they would uh, turn off um, the electricity to part of the city, like a quarter of the city. <clears throat> and essential places, they would warn people in advance. They would tell people, this is when we're going to turn it off. Essential places like hospitals and um, you know transit hubs, like an airport, they would tell way in advance. And they had their own generators. And just as the plane, my father's plane, was coming in for a landing uh, not too far away from the runway, the uh, generator failed or somebody missed a message and they didn't turn on the generator, but all the lights went out. And the pilot picked up the plane. This is what people uh, surmise later on. You know, just rescued her from smashing into the runway or not being able to land. And um, that was the last anybody saw of that plane. And there was no... There was no, so there was no body. There was no body, no wreckage even. They didn't, find, uh, they didn't find a seat cushion from that plane in the Black Sea in January, 12,000 miles away, in the middle of the winter, and that was that. The plane disappeared, and they assumed, of course, that the plane uh, crashed into the ocean, and nobody ever found even you know, the slightest bit of wreckage, and there was no body, no body to see, to mourn, to kneel down next to, to, uh, to scream, to cry, to cry over. There was nothing, nothing. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't what, what, <laughs> what you would, I suppose, call a normal death. It wasn't a normal death. He didn't die from uh, illness. He didn't die from old age. He was not even 58 years old. Uh, I mean, you know, he had high blood pressure and uh, he had gout. He had all kinds of other things. And his diet was terrible, maybe. But he would have lived longer because he had a tremendous joy in life. He loved to live. Love to live. But he, he didn't die like uh, most people I know or my friends um, now. Uh, now that I'm an old guy, uh, some of my friends have died. And they got old. And um, they got sick. And uh, if they were lucky, you know, it wasn't too painful an illness. And they died. And um, just uh, the other day, like, like a week ago, uh, my wife's best friend's husband died. He had cancer for several months, and he died. And everybody was right there uh, with him every moment that he went through everything. And uh, he got to say all his goodbyes to his, to his kid, um, <clears throat> to, his, uh, to his relatives, and, you know, to his wife. and um, Other people, my wife's uh, father um, died in his old age of various illnesses. And uh, everybody was there for literally for his last breath, including me. Um, and that... You know, suppose that's the way you would want to be with somebody if they were gonna if they were gonna die. You would want to see them out, right? And that would be the quote unquote normal way, or the, the 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 mourning process that would that would fit the best way to to see somebody out. <clears throat> but my father died. Here's a guy who was always going away, always missing, and he died uh, in the same way. And um, I didn't really believe, because he was always gone all the time, sometimes gone for months at a time, and then just showing up. He had, a, he had like a, a perverse delight in just calling up out of the blue and saying, um, I'm back, I'm back for a couple of days, or I'm back, you want to get together? 
And then, then he would call me up sometimes and just say, I'm on my way to the airport. I'm going to India. I'm going to Peru, wherever it was. He was, whatever the fuck it was, he was going away. And um, because he was always going away, and because I never saw a body, and I never was able to mourn that, um, for a long time afterwards, for a long time afterwards, I thought I saw him walking on the street. I used to think I saw my father walking on the street. Um, and I would run up. I would run after him. I would run after whoever this was. And sometimes I would run in front of this person or, <coughs> sorry, grab their coat, and they would turn around. It was awkward and strange. But it wasn't my father. He was gone. But I used to think for years, I mean decades, until my like 50s, I used to see my father died when I was about 30 years old, 29. I used to think um, that he was just away someplace for a long, long time. This was just a longer trip, and he would suddenly appear. You know, he would just suddenly be there. Um, I think I got, th I got it through my head that he was gone. Maybe I never got it through my head that he's gone. <laughs> but I think mostly I did when I was in my late 50s or something. And I could just always see him. You know, I see his image. Um, I don't have an image of him. See, that's the thing. I don't have an image of him uh, old and sick and having lost weight. My image of him remains that he was a big, he was a big, burly guy. Uh, he had kind of kinky um, um, black hair that was uh, turning a little gray. And he was very red-faced. He liked to laugh a lot. He liked to eat all the time. He always had a cigar in his mouth or in his hand. Chain-smoked cigars. And he was, a, he was a big liver. You know what I mean? He lived big. He, uh, he ate a lot of big meals, uh, grease. It didn't matter. I mean, he just lo he loved to cook and he uh, loved to drink. Not, you know, he just drank beer. You know, he had a, occasionally he had a drink, but mostly he just drank some beers. He was no alcoholic. And he was always um, <clears throat> laughing about something, um, aside from the times that, uh, well, what, this, is, this is the special thing, though. My father uh, was always trying, to, he was always moving around, and he was always eating, drinking, and he was always moving. He was always moving, 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 walking. He was driving. He was getting on a plane to fly somewhere. The man could not stand to be still. He could not stand to be still. And when he did, there was a time once when I, um, when I was older, when I was in my 20s, uh, when, I got, uh, when I was out of a mental hospital for the first time, and I got divorced. I went to live with my father, and uh, I stayed with him out on Long Island. He lived in a town called Roosevelt, Long Island, which was um, about, uh, I don't know, about 40 minutes by car from where I was at the, then living in, a, in, a, in an apartment in Park Slope. And um, after I um, got divorced from my uh, first wife, I went out to live with my father. It's the first time I had ever stayed with my father. You know, like he was in his house. He had a empty house out there because he had been remarried after my mother and uh, that ended in a divorce. Uh, women generally didn't like my father too much. He was um, not a ladies man. <laughs> he, was a, he was a burly sort of man's man. Kind of a, he could be very stolid or you know, he could make sort of like raw jokes. He was a rough kind of guy. He had a big heart but you had to look for it. You had to know it was there because he could be very rough and he could be even violent he would go into rages. And when I stayed out with him uh, a couple of times, he wasn't traveling then. He liked being home with me. He liked being home with me, getting to be my father, like for the first real time. Uh, and he, it was a wonderful, it was a joy to him to do that. It was like a gift for me to be able to stay with him and to need him and for him to, you know, cook breakfast and show me how to do things. And 
uh, take me places uh, out on the island or maybe, you know, we'd go fishing and do other things. He loved doing that. Um, but what I saw with him was that sometimes at night <coughs> we would sit in, uh, in this sort of darkened basement room. Um, it was a split level, a big basement, and there was a TV, you know. The TV was always there. And we watched sports and we watched other things on TV, comedy shows. He liked to laugh. We watched sports. But the, the more he stayed in one place and the more he was not flying out to, to some exotic location, he would tend to get into these black, melancholy moods, like a big, brooding black mood. And it really was because he just, he just couldn't stand for too long to be domestic. He always had to be, he always had to be in action. And I think about my father when I first entered the scene when I was a little kid. It was the 1950s, and uh, everybody was, you know, recovering from the Depression a couple of decades ago. They were de- recovering from World War II, and uh, everybody was, like, in their house, and it was, uh, you know, Loretta Young, Father Knows Best. It was, uh, it was the house. It was the wife. It was the kids. It was the lawn. It was the car payments. It was going to work 9 to 5, and everybody, or most everybody, uh, you know, I had problems with it, but they were glad to deal with it after all the the horrors and the deprivation of the 30s and, you know, the war and a lot of, got a lot of combat vets, you know. They were glad to have this place. We grew up in a little place in Laurelton, Queens, a little place called Laurelton, Queens, which is still part of the city, but it's, um, it's uh, almost like a suburb of the city, a little community with small houses. And there's my father. You know, this kind of, like, you know, Ernest Hemingway, the, the big traveler, the adventurer. He's got a nine-to-five job in Manhattan. He's got the car that he drives in and drives home. And he's got, uh, he's got his wife, my mother, and he's got me, the little kid. And there it is, right? And he, you know, mowing the lawn and he's fixing up the house. But he wasn't built for that life. The man was not built for that life. Um, and I... I remember he used to have these, uh, um, and my mother was almost impossible to live with. My mother died a sudden death, too. No way to mourn her, really. Um, And she was young, too. But my mother was, poor woman, really, really crazy. She was uh, in and out of hospitals. Uh, She um, (laughs) took a ton of pills, and she was a nervous wreck all the time. So, And the two of them, maybe they loved each other. I don't know. I didn't see enough of them together to ever see that. Somehow I wondered if they did. Maybe they did, but who am I to say? But uh, they just really, they weren't a good pair. You know, my father was one kind of personality. My mother was, he was a, he was a staid, stolid, slow but sure kind of guy. My mother was flipped out. She was always, you know, five thoughts at once, thinking, talking a lot. My father didn't talk too much unless he had something to say. And he didn't really get along that well. So who knows, sex, whatever it was, whatever it was. But um, um, <clears throat> he couldn't. <clears throat> couldn't really take this kind of life. He just wasn't made for it. But he tried. Tried like everybody else in the 50s. You know, you got to get married, have a kid, you know, get yourself a house. Get a, get a co- How many people uh, are cut out for that? Maybe most people, but not everybody. He couldn't handle it. Uh, now that it's Passover, I'm thinking, um, uh, I remember him uh, specifically in Passover and this whole story of this. Because you see everybody walking around and coming in and out of synagogues up in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. And everybody's in there with their families and everybody's uh, dressed up. And it's such a family scene, right? Everybody coming and going to synagogue. But my father 
the way he was. He was perverse. He had to argue. He loved to argue. He would argue with anybody about anything. In fact, if you took the opposite side of an argument in the middle of the argument, he would start to argue the other side of the argument without even knowing he was doing it. He just loved to argue with people. And his father, my grandfather, was a kind of, um, he was an immigrant from Europe, one of those tough guys, and he was a socialist and a militant atheist, my grandfather. And my father was brought up as an atheist, not an agnostic, but as an atheist, that religion was all a crock of shit, that it was all fairy tales, that it was all nonsense, that anybody who believed in God or any form of God was a fool and just a a child and and an idiot. (laughs) And my father was not... um, he was not shy about his, con- his condemnation and his criticisms. In fact, this is before I, um, I didn't know anything about this. I was just a little kid. The local synagogue in my neighborhood was called the Jewish Community House, the JCH. And um, uh, apparently, one, he used to talk all the time, and people would uh, tell him to be quiet while the rabbi was you know, giving his sermon or during his services. Apparently, one time, he was in a really, really bad mood. I guess he had to be on his horse moving, but he wasn't going anywhere, right? And he had the wife, he had the kid, and I wasn't there. But apparently, he started criticizing the rabbi in the middle of a holiday sermon, and he was getting louder and louder. And the guys, uh, this is a like lower middle class, hardly even middle class, lower, lower middle class group of guys. Most of them had been combat vets. They were tough guys, right? And uh, my father was uh, saying things out loud, out loud during the sermon when everybody was trying to pray or everybody was trying to commune. And uh, one thing led to another. Somebody told him he had to be quiet. And apparently they physically threw my father out of the synagogue, which is the first and last time that ever happened in that place. And um, that was him. Bottom line is the man had to get away. Um, 10,000 miles was not enough. The further, the more remote and the more dangerous, the better.
Born to be wild. Some people are just born to be wild, and to try to domesticate them doesn't work. Now, I don't know why he was that way. You know, you know, I wasn't there when he was a kid. I wasn't there when he was growing up. My grandfather was uh, a genuine tough guy and an adventurer of a real sort. Not to say my father wasn't, but my grandfather emigrated from, uh, from he escaped, basically, like a lot of Jews did, from, uh, from Russia. Uh, rather than be conscripted into the army when he was 16 or 17 years old, and traveled by himself, a Jew, speaking only Russian and Yiddish, across thousands of miles of Eastern Europe and Europe itself, wound up at the port of Hamburg, where a lot of Jewish immigrants uh, were, uh, took, uh, took flight for the New World, and came over here and... Uh, did something that hardly any other Jew ever did, uh, the, to my acquaintance of that generation. Joined the army. <laughs> he joined the army. And uh, I have a um, discharge paper from 1911 from my grandfather. Uh, a very handsome guy, you know, but um, there was his discharge papers. And he had been in the Philippines, which was our first Vietnam. If you study history, you'll find out that in the 1890s uh, through, like, you know, the early 1900s and even further— uh, we were fighting an endless war with uh, Filipino guerrillas. It was, uh, and he was in the army there, and God knows what he did. And he was a boxer. My grandfather was a boxer. Uh, maybe he learned over in Europe to take. I mean, God knows what he had to get through to survive, to get over to Hamburg, to get on a, into teenager, to get on a boat, you know, to get on a, uh, you know, a tramp steamer or whatever it was. And he comes over here, and he's a boxer, and he gets out of the army. He was actually. Um, they say, I don't have a certificate to prove it, that he was a middleweight boxing champion of his uh, brigade. And when he gets out, he became an organizer. Uh, they call it a union organizer for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. This is when unions were uh, considered illegal and mafia goons were hired by the bosses to beat up these women when they went on picket lines, 1905, 1906, 1917, whatever it was. And... Um, they, in turn, looked around for, uh, for people they could trust, Italians and Jews, mostly, mostly Jews, to be, uh, to be their own tough guys. And my grandfather was. I remember once talking to a friend of mine named uh, Kenny. who was an Italian guy. His father was a low-level mafia guy. But he, got, he went all the way back to that time, too. And he said, uh, yeah, we were tough, and uh, we did what we had to do, blah, 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 usual line of bullshit. You know, it's just business. <laughs> 
But we saw those guys coming, meaning the union organizers, my grandfather's group. We ran, he said. He said they were crazy and they were tough. So that was my grandfather. And um, um, I went off. What did I go off on this tangent for? My father just, uh, you know, he grew up. He grew up a certain way. And I don't know what, what uh, I went on. When my, after my father died, after my father died, I went out to see his older sister, my Aunt Frances. This is a long time ago now. So I was like 30, 31 years old. And um, she told me that, her, that my grandfather, who I only met once by then, he was in a wheelchair, he had uh, Parkinson's, was a real charmer. My grandfather had been a boxer, and he also was extremely handsome. He was a ladies' man. He was, uh, he was uh, debonair. He was light on his feet. He had even been a dancer and a singer and an actor on the Yiddish stage, the thriving Yiddish stage on the Lower East Side in Manhattan, back, back, back in the day. So he, he gets this son, maybe a good-hearted boy, but he's slow and steady and heavy. And uh, my father grew up, and she said that my grandfather used to ridicule my father. He used to be merciless and used to ridicule him. He didn't hit him, but he, was, he used to ridicule him. He'd say, you're slow, you know, uh, make fun of him because he wasn't, he was smart. My father was brilliant, but he was slow. And he wasn't, uh, he, he took his time, and he wasn't, he was a different kind of a man. He wasn't quick, and he didn't make a lot of jokes. And uh, apparently my grandfather and him just couldn't get along. Sometimes you have a kid, maybe you have one of your kids or you have a kid. It's just you're so different than them. You love them almost even more because they're different than you and you want to reach out to them and, and give your love to them. You know, it's, it's almost, this, I know it's a generality, it's almost easy to love a kid when they're just like you. <laughs> they could be a pain in the ass, but when they're just like you, it's almost easy to love them as much as you love them. But when you have a kid who's different than you, uh, when, when, when their personality is so different, the way they approach things, how they think, uh, their physical behavior, uh, you feel like you're always having to get to get, you have always having to get them. You're always having to connect with them all the time. And uh, it brings out even more love. But apparently with my grandfather, as much as he might have loved my father, he ridiculed them all the time. So my father, what, for one reason or another, and then he grew up... Um, during the Depression, and it was hard times for him, and worked his way through City College where he went at night. And uh, he, um, he uh, you know, he, his great shame and his embarrassment, and one thing that always made him really angry all the time, and lasted his whole life, was he's this big, strong guy. He could not, he went to join the Army, and they rejected him during World War II. As a Jew, he felt he wanted to go and fight the Nazis. He wanted to be in Europe fighting the Nazis. But they rejected him. Because he had, he had a bad disc in his back. Uh, even though he was able to do a lot of work and did things, he was active, they, uh, they found out somehow that he had a bad disc uh, in his back. They examined him, and they rejected him from the Army. And he always felt shame for that. He wanted to, to have been in Europe. He wanted to have been in the Army. He wanted to be fighting Hitler. And he couldn't do it, and he always felt bad about that. Whatever it was, there was something chasing him. There was always something chasing him, or he was always running after something. Something was always getting to him. And my father, the poor man just, uh, who was the Jesus' message of love is here. My father could not handle love. Could not, what's that in that movie? The guy says, you can't handle the truth, right? Jack Nicholson. My father could not handle love, either going in or coming out. He couldn't do it. Either going out or coming in, love was, uh, was really hard for him, almost impossible. 
and domesticity, but love, of love your family, your kid, you know, your wife, whatever. Uh, as much as he did, he just couldn't, he couldn't deal with it. But who is to judge? Who is to judge? I mean, I have always been like this myself. I have been struggling with this my whole life. Uh, so uh, for, for reasons, the way I grew up, and who knows what kind of, I mean, I feel like I have a loving nature, but the way I grew up, I became, and still am, sort of walled off protected alone but uh, i didn't i didn't uh disappear and go on great adventures to get away from the occasion or the situation of love i got sick like my mother because i grew up with my mother so my way of avoiding relationships was always to get sick and still to this day just you know fine i'm sick i get this is wrong with me that was wrong with me i'm sorry i can't really connect (laughs) that's my excuse Uh, it's almost as if love for some people uh, for was for my father, and I know for some other people that I've known, and certainly for me, it's, it's as if it was, uh, especially the, the trusting, pure love of children was almost like poison to me. Love was like kryptonite, you know? It was the one thing that would get through to me and kill me. But, um, and always, always been struggling with this. But last weekend, my granddaughter, my daughter came in from the West Coast where she lives and um, brought my granddaughter. My, gra- my actual granddaughter, who I've only seen on Skype before. And she's there. There she is. Her name's Rose, Rosie, uh, named after my grandmother. And she's five months old. And my daughter is there, who I have not seen in a long, long time. And also my son showed up, who lives in another city, too. All of them live so far away. It's modern world, right? Everybody just moves away. And it was his birthday. So there's my son and his wife, uh, my daughter and her husband, and the little baby. And I held this baby, sat down and held the baby in my arms. It's the first time that I've held a baby in my arms since my son was little, 30 years ago, 31 years ago, 31 years ago. And I forgot that kind of astounding feeling where this baby looks up at you and reaches up with her hand, which is just learning how to coordinate and maybe pokes your nose or puts her hand in your mouth or she was playing with my beard, Rosie. And um, then I got a couple of smiles, those brief little beautiful toothless baby smiles. Uh, and she has these wonderful eyes. They, am I boasting? I mean, what's the difference? She had these be- She's a beautiful little baby and she has bright, lively blue eyes and uh, a beautiful mouth and a beautiful nose and she's beautiful. And there she is. And... Her being here uncorked this gigantic ocean of feeling in me, which I have, like I said, been spending most of my life trying to avoid because it feels like it's going to kill me. This feeling of love, memories, images of my family, uh, the chain, maybe the chains of love and family, grandchildren, grandparents, parents, children. And all these feelings are like warmth, beauty, happiness, sadness, but joy, pain, uh, regrets, though, and yearning, all of these things that come with a connection to other people, a deep connection to other people. And I especially was thinking of my father um, because it was his birthday coming. And I was thinking of snapshots of my father. Um, uh, there were so many hard times and bad times with him. He was in a rage at me when I was a kid all the time, screamed at me when I was a little kid before he left. He would get turn red-faced and start screaming and jump in the car and drive away from the house. There's one photograph I have of him looking at me. I was in a playpen out in the front lawn out in Laurelton, and there's my father looking down at me 
with this very perplexed look on his face, like, what have I done? What, what is this? Who is this? What do I do? And he was sort of scratching his head. This is so emblematic of the relationship uh, that I have with my father. Um, what I, but, you know, I'm trying to remember the good times, and there were good times. And mostly you know, when I was a little kid, he used to take me. My father was the master of the material world. He was a scientist. He knew everything. He was like a walking encyclopedia of science and natural history. And he took me to, um, when I was a little kid, he took me to visits, and I love this, visits to the Bronx Zoo and uh, to the Museum of Natural History, American Museum of Natural History, an incredible place for a little kid, or both of these places, and the planetarium. And the planetarium, I remember, uh, I don't know if they still have this, but if you go to the planetarium and haven't been there for a long time. In fact, when my kid, when my son was little, uh, we lived right around the corner from the Museum of Natural History and the planetarium, and I also took him to these places. And I remember walking with my father with my hand in his, this big guy, and him explaining absolutely everything, all the dioramas and everything in the planetarium. He knew everything about everything that was scientific. And um, I used to look it up at him with wonder. And he would sometimes he'd pick me up in his arms way up, and I could look at things that I couldn't see from the ground level. And, um, and I remember I took my son to these same places, which had changed very little in all those decades. And I would ex- suddenly I, I was uh, a fount of knowledge, some of it aided by the little plaques that were on there, you know, or little information things. But I remembered everything that my father had told me when I was little. And there's this exact repetition. This is what goes on, this chain of love and family. Um, uh, And then when I was older, you know, my father was a tremendous Knicks fan. And when I was a teenager or in my 20s, when my father was around, he took me to see the Knicks. My father was a big basketball fan because when he had gone to City College, City College had a famous team that uh, had been a national champion, I think. Um, <clears throat> and he took me to, um, to see the Knicks, and uh, we would scream and yell, and, and he would, you know, he would uh, you know, say, that away, you know, way to go, way to go. He used to scream all the time, <laughs> way to go. He was loud, ate a lot of popcorn, drank a lot of beer, had hot dogs, two, three, four hot dogs. And I had a few, too. And I loved being there with him. And then sometimes he would take me fishing. My father was a big uh, fisher, fisherman. And uh, we would go out to Long Island, and we would fish off the, um, off the dock sometimes on the south shore of Long Island, which is uh, the Atlantic Ocean. And, um, and uh, he would teach me how to, he taught me how to use a rod and a reel. He taught me how to uh, put the hook in the fish, in the, in the worm, which me being the tender sort that I had been brought up to be, <laughs> At first, I had trouble with it. I was not happy about uh, taking a live worm and sticking a hook in this poor little creature. And then later on, if I did catch a fish, which was a thrilling thing. Uh, we went camping, too, one time, and we caught fish, uh, which was a whole other story. But also, I had, to take, um, I had to take the hook out of the fish's mouth when it was still alive. Not thrilled with that. Not thrilled with that. But my father showed me how to do it. Uh, later on, I was older, we had this uh, experience that a lot of, a lot of uh, guys like me had in the 60s. Uh, Vietnam, the war in Vietnam. We had terrible, terrible arguments, violent arguments. It was like a civil war in the country if you lived through that period, uh, one generation against the next. My father uh, had gone to City College, as I said, and he, um, he went there in the 30s when it was teeming with communists, mostly Jewish communists. It was a center for that. That's where the Rosenbergs uh, went to college. That's where I was there. Is it Alfred 
Rosenberg. That's where they went to college. The city college was a, uh, the FBI would investigate these people. There, it, was, um, it was a center for uh, communist uh, agitation and communist students. It was a big time for that. And my father, he was uh, sympathetic to it. You know, he went there. But uh, later on, after World War II, a lot of this uh, feeling that people had about uh, Russia and everything, when Russia turned out to be, after World War II, turned out to be our big enemy, you know, the, the, the evil empire. Um, and they were, you know, pretty awful, right? Um, um, my father switched, and it was all patriotism like that. It was America, you know, America is the place. No place else but America. And I think, uh, and patriot, he was patriotic. And part of this had to do with the fact that he was never able to serve in the army and fight in World War II. And all, so all these things went into it, but he was very patriotic. And he saw people like me protesting the war, which I did. Uh, I did it in my college. I was the head of the Young Democrats, and I protested the war, protested Johnson. And, you know, I was on uh, went to demonstrations, almost got arrested, stuff like that. And he would say, how can you do this? You're, and then he would say, you're like a communist. <laughs> and I'd say, well, you're a fascist. My father, my father, the fascist, right, sitting in his suburban home, uh, having just uh, cooked dinner for me. <laughs> my father, the fascist, and we'd have violent arguments, and I'd jump in a car and I'd drive back to the city. But uh, like, I do remember one time, my father. I remember my father's. Uh, I went out. And this is after the, God knows how many arguments. I went out there and told him that I was 4F. I had been declared 4F um, for various reasons, and. Um, he started to cry. The first time I ever saw my father cry, tough guy that he was, he was so relieved, despite these big arguments we had, he was so relieved that his son wasn't going to fight in Vietnam. And that's when I felt the love. You know, if I didn't feel it before or I was looking for it or I wasn't sure about it, I saw his rage, I saw his anger, and I saw his love in all sorts of other ways too when I think back on it now. He used to love to cook. And he used to love to make me things. And he used to show me all this stuff about showing me how to do things. Or we'd go out in the backyard when it was dark and he'd show me the night sky. He knew all the constellations, every one of them. He would tell me what the stars were, how much, they, how much uh, the, the mass and the weight of planets and stars were. He knew everything. And this is how he was showing me his love, was to share what he knew with me. And a lot of, a lot of men do this through sports, through knowledge, through politics, through their own knowledge, what they share with their sons, at least, that kind of thing. Um, and there were two other times I remember uh, him having tears. Two other times I remember him having tears. Um, I had always been, and still am, sort of struggling, you know, with, with mental troubles. And I had just, uh, I had just gotten out of a, a mental hospital, and I was staying with him, he had gone to work, and I had gone to, um, I, you know, gone back to my job. I was a probation officer um, for the city of New York. I had a badge. I had a gun. <laughs> he was very proud of that. My father was very proud that I was a, what he called a cop, right? And one time, though, when I was struggling and struggling just to, just to stay sane, and I went into the city, and uh, he left his office with me, and we had lunch together. And he was with a couple of other guys. And, uh, but I was so obviously struggling, and I hardly even knew what to say. I could hardly speak to him. And he, um, he just started, uh, tears were in his eyes, which uh, he was not happy about. He didn't like to show this in front of anybody. Um, and I said, you know, why are you crying? Why are you crying? And he said, because you're my son, and it hurts. Um, and it was... Uh, just at those moments, those moments, you connect with people on a different level, on the deeper level, right? 
not just yeah, this is a this is a mastodon. They roamed the uh, Earth in such and such a time. Or that's Jupiter. That's the largest planet. And those are the moons. Of, not that. Not uh, see what the Knicks did today. It's great. It's all great. But not that. But these tears. My father was not good at physical things. He did not like hugging. My father did not like embracing people or hugging people. And I think the number of times he hugged me in my life was somewhere between zero and four. Um, he just didn't like it. And, <clears throat> and I had some of that myself. I have trouble with that. But uh, I guess a lot better than he was. Um, and because he wasn't around when I was little, I didn't get that kind of physical attention. So that's something I always yearn for, too. And I remember one last time. So there's three times that I remember. One time I saw more tears in his eyes. It was uh, shortly before his death, actually. It was in Turkey. And we were in Izmir, a city called Izmir. Um, and it's on the coast, but I don't even remember what ocean. There's all kinds of seas and oceans over there whose names I don't recall at the moment. We're sitting in a restaurant in Izmir. We had been traveling around, and um, my father was being his usual self, and I was trying to talk to him, and my father had a habit of, uh, this is a way of protecting himself, I don't know, but uh, he was always talking about, I, this is what I think. You know what I think? I think, um, that's not what I think. That's what I... Here's, what, here's the way I see it. And he would interrupt you. Whatever you said to him, he didn't want to take it in. He didn't want to take it in. He wanted to hear what you had to say, especially if you had an opinion. It was difficult for him to hear other people's opinions. <laughs> and he, we, he was, I was saying something to him, and I was really trying to connect with him how few times I saw him. I went over to Turkey to visit him, right? Took time off from my job. And I, I was trying to talk to him, and I um, hadn't seen him for, I don't know, six months, and I wasn't going to see him for another six months. Didn't know he was going to die. Um, and I was talking to him about things that were important to me, you know, stuff going on in my life. And he said, well, and he interrupted me. He says, well, let me tell you what I think. And I said, you know, every time I try, I remember this conversation. Every time I try to say something important to you, I get smashed over the head with a big eye. And it got through to him. He actually heard me say that. And he said, um, <clears throat> um, I, have to use the, uh, I have to use the head. And he gets up and goes to the bathroom comes back after a long time and I could still see that he had, he had tears in his eyes, that he had uh, dried some tears in his eyes. Um, so many other memories I have of my father. I actually wrote about, uh, I wrote about uh, 20 <laughs> pages of stuff. All of this, uh, this chain of things that goes with fathers and children. And, my, and that, that, my grand, that my granddaughter showed up here and that little face and something that I know that she's got part of the DNA of everybody in her. Oh, man. Just, just astounding. And so all the memories I had of my father, uh, you know, let the bad ones slip. And I let the good ones arrive. Um, and now his birthday is coming. You know, like I say, it would have been 100 years old. Uh, extraordinary, right? I mean, there are people who live to be 100 years old. I read, you know, every once in a while, you know, you read in the paper that you see a picture of some old person, a you know, Esther Smith, 107 years old. And inevitably, when they interview these people, they say, what's the secret? What's the secret to living this long? And this, you know, they say, rightly so. They say, well, you know, it's not under my control. God, God bless me. And then they usually say, uh, and every morning I had five eggs and six sausages. It's not what, <laughs> not what you think you're going to hear. It's not like, oh, and I've been on a diet and I've eaten the right food. No, no, no. They just, they basically, they just lived their lives in a balanced way. They did what they needed to do and what they wanted to do, and they did for others, too. 
and it was balanced, and they had the genes, right? Anyhow, so my father, he never would have lived to be that old. Um, but now his birthday is coming, and with my beautiful little granddaughter and her beam of pure love and my children there and my wife there, now I remember my father, not the fear of his rages or even the terrible, that aching yearning for him that I had all those times, which I still have, and he went away. But I remember, finally, that he had a big heart. It caused him a lot of trouble. And I remember the absolute certainty, and I feel absolutely certain now, see my granddaughter and I think of him, that he did love me. And happy birthday. He was a man and a friend always He stuck with me in the hard old days He never cared if I had no dough We rambled round in the rain and snow And here's to you, my rambling boy all your rambling bring you joy Here's to you, my rambling boy May all your rambling bring you joy In Tulsa town we chanced to stray we thought we'd try to work one day The boss said he had room for one Says my old pal, we'd rather bung And here's to you, my rambling boy May all your rambling bring you joy Late one night in a jungle camp The weather, it was cold and damp He got the chills and he got them bad They took the only friend I had And here's to you, my rambling boy May all your rambling bring you joy. Here's to you. Okay. All right. That's it for this week. This is Mike Fader with The Turning Point. <clears throat> We're here every Friday live um, at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on this station, prn.fm. And um, hopefully I will say, oh, if you want to get in touch with me about this or anything else, Go to the Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com, and uh, there'll be a way to contact me there. Thanks for listening.